0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is the 200th episode of this podcast. It started back in 2017, if you can believe that. But before we get to this special episode, I want to give you a couple of sponsor messages. A couple of weekends ago, the Texas Outdoor Musical finally returned after having to shut down last summer, and I'm thrilled that it's back. Nothing says summer in Amarillo like attending this musical in Palo Duro Canyon State Park. If you are a veteran or a first responder, put June 18th on your radar. That night, you get 20% off general admission tickets at TexasShow.com. That's Texas-Show.com. And another thing that's back this summer is the Hey Amarillo Beer Fest on July 31st at Starlight Ranch Event Center. Put that on your calendar and watch for ticket info soon. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I also want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo National Bank. I've been an A&B customer since I got my very first checking account when I was in high school in the early 1990s. So, 200 episodes. The very first episode of Hey Amarillo was released on September 29th, 2017. It was an interview with Ginger Nelson, who had just become Amarillo's mayor a few months earlier. She was pretty new on the job at that point. Now, the the format has been refined a little bit since then. I think I've become a better interviewer, but surprisingly, I guess, to me, I haven't missed a week since then. And so for this milestone episode, number 200, I'm going to sit on the other side of the microphone. I asked my friend Jackie Kingston, who anchors KAMR Local 4 News at 5, 6, and 10 every weekday, along with her Politics Today show. Anyway, I asked Jackie to interview me for this episode. I gave her free reign to ask pretty much any questions she wanted to. Uh, So that's the show today. Here's Jackie Kingston, and here's me.
1: Jason Boyette, welcome to your Hey Amarillo podcast. <laughs> Thanks for well, being here.
0: Thank you, Jackie. I feel like I should say thank you for being here because we're at um, my my house recording. Um, thank you for being here to interview me.
1: I'm so excited to do it. I've, I'm a listener to the podcast. I have learned so much about Amarillo. I'm so glad that you do this. So I'm glad to kind of get into your brain a little bit and figure out you know the whys
0: and hows. Well, it, it feels a little bit self-indulgent to do that, but um, but i I was thinking the last time there was we did an interview of me as my dog comes down the stairs, if you hear her mm-hmm. jingling, um <laughs> was when uh, we hit the fifty second episode, mm-hmm. uh, and I just thought that was such a milestone. I've done it for a year, and now we're at like episode two hundred, you know, four years past, so i i it feels like an okay time to to dig back into that. so thanks for thanks for coming in
1: absolutely. okay. Let's start kind of at the beginning. I know you always start your show this way and people may not have been listeners since the 52nd episode. And so tell me how you came to be in Amarillo.
0: So I was born in Lubbock, um, lived there for the first couple of years of my life. Uh, my, my dad was an architect who went to Texas Tech. Uh, my mom was a A deaf ed teacher who went to Texas Tech. Um, She got her master's. My dad got his bachelor's degree there. And so they married and stayed there. My mom was originally from that area. And then after a couple of years working in Lubbock, he had an opportunity to come up here and begin working for a builder as, I guess, an in-house architect, as as I understood it. And that brought us to Amarillo. And so that was 1978, 77. Uh, We built a house or they built a house. My dad designed it and built it. It was the first house on their block in the Paramount Terrace area, and they still live there. And so we uh, we still live here too. I've had opportunities to go someplace else, but they were never enough to leave behind the stuff that I'd be leaving behind. Is your
1: extended family around here? Your your Yes. So kind of you? we
0: have a lot of family here. Um, my dad's parents lived in Amarillo all of my life, um, retired here and uh, they've both passed away since then, but they were uh, almost lifelong Amarilloans. My wife, Amy's parents and grandparents all lived here. She grew up here too. My brother is here. So most of our family is here.
1: Where'd you go to high school? Tascosa,
0: class of 1992. I was the first freshman class in 1988 to enter into the local high schools. So they were uh, 10th, 11th, 12th grade until 1988 when the freshmen, uh, joined the high school. So I did not get a freshman year at junior high. Um, I only went to two years of junior high at Austin. And so I, I feel like I kind of got, uh, Got the shaft in, in that regard. I didn't get to be the cool kid on my junior high campus. I wouldn't have been that anyway, but <laughs> your first time around as a senior so uh, that yeah, kind of exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. in in seventh grade, like that's a really big deal. You oh, think all oh, the ninth graders are really cool. Now, yeah, I didn't get to do that. yeah,
1: well, i'm I'm sure you made up for it. Where'd you go to college? What'd you do after high school?
0: So I stuck around here. Um I went to Amarillo College for two years, kind of three years, as uh, I was a mass communications major uh, with Dr. Paul Matney as my advisor and one of my uh, professors. I uh, worked in the journalism department there. Uh, I was a news editor for The Ranger. I was the editor for uh, AC Current, uh, which is the the college magazine. Um, and then I stuck around a year after that and took a couple of advertising classes after I'd gotten my associate's degree. Just because I wanted to took a couple of classes and I worked part time at AC uh, as the editor of the magazine and so I did that for two semesters, which is is kind of rare. Uh, then I went to WT after that was an English major at WT ended up getting my bachelor's there and then came came back here
1: what did you what was your first job right out of college
0: i right out of college, I worked as uh, a college communications intern for Paramount Baptist Church. Uh, So at the time, I had thoughts that I might end up going into the ministry. I was also very good at uh, design and writing, and so I did a lot of the communications work for that church while uh, also working with college students uh, and leading some stuff there. Um, So I built my very first website in like 1997, uh, using PageMill, which is uh, something that doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, uh, but built the church's website, uh, developed a, a whole bunch of things, uh, and and got my feet wet in design and communications, and did that for a couple of years, and then I got hired by what was then Trafton Printing, which is now Sinveo, uh, as a writer and designer in sort of a boutique marketing department that they had that kind of operated like an advertising agency, um, fed jobs to the the, the printers, uh, but also did stuff like um, some TV commercials and some radio writing, and we worked for clients like United Supermarkets, uh, producing magazines and newsletters and things like that. So it was a, it was a weird kind of job. Um, I had a an odd skill set back then in that I had learned to design at Amarillo College. Actually, um, designed the the magazine and the newspaper using desktop publishing. Plus, I was also a writer and that's that it's not always a combination that works together uh, and so I found that I was a really good fit in marketing and advertising
1: and then what did you do after that you how long did you work for Trafton
0: I was at Trafton for about four or five years I started uh, as you know just an hourly employee uh, ended up as the creative director of that little boutique department uh, and and Found out pretty fast uh, once I got in that management position that I did not like management. Mm. I like production, and I enjoyed designing things. I enjoyed writing things. I did not enjoy asking people to do those things for me. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways that's a little bit... It, it's, a, it's an acknowledgment of what I'm good at, I think, which is, is fine. Um, but there's also enough ego in there that I always thought... I could probably do a better job doing this than somebody working for me. And that is not great if you're a manager. It, it makes it hard for me to assign tasks. And so I, I figured out that I would do a lot better working on my own for myself. Um, and so that was, that was a lesson I learned. And, and kind of since then, uh, other than, than another stop uh, doing communications, I, I've kind of been on my own and, and managing myself, which is a whole lot easier
1: yeah I think that's an interesting point to think that you know you have to kind of acknowledge your personality traits. you know not everybody is cut out for these things for different reasons. It's not just because you know you, you think of terrible bosses that you've had, it's like short temper, all these things, but it's not always those things. sometimes it's you know just just a personality strength that you have in yeah. a different well, area.
0: I, it's nice it's nice to think of it as a strength i i I think there are some strengths to it um Competence is a strength, uh, but an inability to, to help someone who is working for you discover that competence on their own, I, th- I think is a weakness in a boss um, because my mindset was always either I've got to spend two hours getting you to do this the way that I want you to do this, or I could spend an hour doing it myself. And so, for efficiency, sometimes I do it myself, and then I'm taking that opportunity away from them to learn something or to create something. And so, um, that it, I guess there are some positives and negatives to that. Uh, but I uh, I had trouble trouble letting go of those negatives as as a manager. Yeah.
1: Tell me about your adventures in writing. You've done a lot of different um, sort of styles of writing over the years. I have. Uh, walk me through that.
0: I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, that's that's why I started working on the newspaper at Amarillo College because I was naturally good at writing. I was one of those annoying kids in uh, high school English classes that, like, loved essay assignments. You know, write this in the style of Ernest Hemingway or something like that. I just, that was so much fun, and I was good at it. Um, and so I was always uh, of the mindset that I should embrace the things that I'm good at. Uh, and so I, I wanted to write books, um, in as soon as I graduated from WT, I started writing a novel. Finished it uh, about eighteen months later. Never got it published. wasn't very good, but uh, I figured out that I could write, you know, an eighty thousand word book. Um, and so, as opportunities began to uh, to come along in the early two thousands with some different publishing companies, uh, some new. New markets. I pursued those, and so 2003, I began. I got a contract to write my very first book. Started writing it, and and over the course of you know the next 12 years, wrote about a dozen books. Um, Most of those kind of set in the world of religion. They were nonfiction books um, because that was something I also knew, and uh, found myself wanting to educate people. I, I have a real mindset to. To teach people uh, things that that they may not understand, and I, I have a an ability, and maybe this is tied to journalism or, or whatever, but an ability to synthesize like really big ideas into something that's accessible and readable for people that aren't as in depth with those ideas. And so I would take big religious ideas like um, the apocalypse or the Bible, or you know, explaining different world religions and. Write about them in a way that you could understand if you weren't a theologian or um, somebody going you know through Bible school classes or anything like that. Uh, and so i was I was writing those books for younger audiences, um, worked with uh, a company called Relevant Books that had just started around two thousand and three. Uh, and so for several years, like I, I tried to be that guy who was like a, a religion author, uh, somebody speaking to this this demographic. Uh, and I worked pretty hard at that, um but it's tough to build a platform as a writer. Uh, it's tough to make a living as a writer, even somebody who has gotten traditionally published book contracts, you know, unless you're Stephen King or John Grisham, you know you're making maybe ten thousand dollars to write a book if you're really successful um, and you start to compare that ten thousand dollars to the 10,000 hours maybe it took, and you start to think, well, you know, if I can make this much per hour doing something else instead of writing books, maybe I should spend my time doing that. And so gradually uh, I was writing books while I also had uh, other jobs and was doing the freelance work that I do now, and eventually I just kind of let that dream fall aside because I pursued it for several years and it just didn't quite happen. I, I, I have some friends who have been able to make a living as writers doing exactly what I was doing, it didn't happen for me, and that's okay.
1: The publishing world is so different now. I feel like a lot of people attribute their success to being able to publish online, right? Like eBooks are are an, a, a totally new revenue stream mm-hmm. for authors now than they really were back in the threes and sevens of the there Yeah, you know, there was, 50, there was a
0: stigma back then mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if you were self-publishing, it's because you couldn't make it with a real publisher.
1: And you don't think that's still there now? It's
0: not a stigma anymore. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've self-published some books uh, to Amazon Kindle. It's easier than ever. In fact, it's so easy that there's a real glut in the marketplace right now. I mean, there's just so much. And, and you might download something from Amazon um, thinking that it's the work of a traditional publisher or a professional writer, and it's like not. It's not been copy edited. The design is terrible. I mean... It, it, but otherwise, it looks the same, and and so it's hard. It's harder now to find good content. It's easier to publish, and a lot because it's easier. A lot of successful traditional writers who have had success, you know, publishing with Doubleday or whatever, have also turned to self-publishing because, you know, instead of making ten percent on your royalties, you could make up to sixty or seventy percent royalties. Um, and if so, if you you're have su- the name recognition, if you have the recognition, right. if you have the platform. Um, And so there's a model where it really does work. Uh, It's removed that stigma that says this book is not any good because it's been self-published. That is not true at all. But it has made it a little bit more difficult to find quality work because there's so much that has not passed through those gatekeepers of editors and designers, all that kind of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about That aspect of it, when you when you have this big inflation in the market of all of these things that are readily available, I think we see that a little bit, not a little bit, we see that in journalism as well, where people are producing this content. And if you just have all of this content, you may not have the people who are dedicated writers about the topic like you talked about going through reading all this content and then synthesizing these huge ideas that you'd done hours and and you know years of study about to synthesize it down to something that was distilled to in truth Mm -hmm. right and in in evidence and in you know tradition in some ways and in some of the topics that you might have covered and you know in the same in the same sort of way we see journalism going, well, I have a camera on my phone, Exactly. you know, and so it's, it very much waters down the market a little bit in my, in my perspective. No, it's, it's true?
0: absolutely true. And I've, one of the things I like to tell people when I talk about my books, or I talk even about my, my written print journalism is how many hours of fact checking take place yeah. when it's done with a legitimate publication or editor. I, my, my most recent book, and I wrote it in two thousand. 2015 was a big book about world religions. And the actual writing of that book took as long as the fact checking of that book. Because when I, when I delivered the manuscript to my publisher, they went through and they asked for the evidence for every factual thing I said about 12 different world religions. Where did you get this? Where did it come from? Did you get it off Wikipedia? Did you get it from an original source? You know, that sort of thing. And it took months, you know, us going back and forth to confirm everything that I knew was true, but like we just had to have proof. I wrote an article for Texas Highways about Canyon, Texas, you know, talking about visiting there. They went back and they fact checked every quote, you know. If 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 I interviewed Dallas at Burrowing Owl and she said this, they're going back to make sure Dallas is the owner of Burrowing Owl and that she really did say this. And so that, that gatekeeper ensures the accuracy and the quality of the product. And that's good for me. It's it's a pain for me sometimes as a writer. Mm-hmm. And you know that as a reporter to have to establish all that. But you know, when people are, are coming to me and saying, Oh, you can't believe anything, the national news, you know puts out. None of this stuff on CNN is accurate. I'm like, look, I had to confirm quotes from a bookstore owner in Canyon, Texas. And the quote was about her loving Canyon, Texas. Like if if editors are so dedicated to accuracy that they, they want to make sure that's correct, like what is happening at these giant organizations like the New York Times? They're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I think that's
1: something that, you know, as we as we think about media literacy and as we think about because there's so much content to choose from that people maybe are making choices they wouldn't have made ten, twenty years ago and getting the content from from those places that are less reliable but who look the same
0: like a podcast like, maybe well, a, a popular podcast, yeah. which is you know this is not a an investigative journalistic podcast um, but So many people are relying on Facebook Mm -hmm. or blogs, or the equivalent of blogs or podcasts from people who have established a platform and so they come across as authority figures. And those platforms don't have the same system of of checks and balances or gatekeeping uh, that many others don't have. And so yes, we have access to more and more voices than we ever did, more and more authorities than we ever did. It's easier to build a platform and distribute information but we have fewer of those, those gates that ensure that the information is reliable. And I think that's, that's a big part of the challenge and joy of, of living in our society today. If I want to hear anybody's voice, I can find it. But that doesn't mean that voice is always trustworthy.
1: Yeah, I think about the creativity that's come out of the self-publishing and podcasts and, you know, people who do have phones that they're carrying around that have good quality cameras on them yeah, yeah. that can take all this stuff. There's a lot of creative. I even think, you know, the Instagram filters and stuff are are creative and cool and, you know, all that. Are they a reliable reflection of what that person looks like? No. Never. But they're cool, right? Yeah. Like so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword when you go, "Man, there's this is a a lot of creativity going into this, a lot of hours of development and interest, but then, you know, how do we make sure that there's a core of of reliable information of accurate information and that those things are still valued in our society?"
0: Yeah. Literacy is important um when it comes to the media, and I feel that Very few of us have it to the degree that we need to have it. You almost need to be immersed in it um, like you are, like I am, to really understand how things, you know, become publishable, whether it's uh, on TV, on Instagram, on uh, Kindle, I mean, any of that stuff. And other than that, we, we tend to be just very receptive to anything that comes across as authoritative.
1: Well, before we get too pigeonholed into you know the, the <laughs> to talk the about, the, about, about. News. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the, the news, right? The news of what we're you know most comfortable with. Okay, talk to me about the choice that you've made, probably multiple times, to stay in Amarillo. What's kept you here?
0: I mean, that's a good question. I had an opportunity to uh, to become an editor at a a fairly uh, high profile magazine back in 2007, 2008, and considered it pretty seriously. It was, in, it was based in Florida. I decided not to leave, number one, because I have so much family here, uh, and that has always been important to me. I had small kids at, a, at the time. Uh, my kids are almost full-fledged adults at this point, but I valued their ability to live on a daily basis among their grandparents and with their cousins, my, my brother and his family. Uh, I think that's important, and I think that's a, a, a big part of their upbringing, and could never really get to the point where my career goals became more important than the childhood that I wanted for my kids, uh, which is something that parents deal with all the time. Some make different decisions all the time. Uh, my decision was that I, I didn't feel like I could put myself first if it meant taking something of value away from them. Uh, And so at that moment, I decided to stay here. Obviously, the cost of living here is so much better than it is in other parts of the country where uh, we see that all the time. And, you know, as someone who was self-employed as a glorified freelance writer, like I would have been impoverished if I lived on the West Coast or the East Coast. In Amarillo, I've been just fine. And so... All those things kind of factored into my decision. I, I love living here. I think, like everybody says, it is a good place to raise a family. Public schools are great. Uh, the weather is endurable. Um, sometimes it's great. And, and so, yeah, that was not a hard decision, um, but it is, a, it is a decision that I made very intentionally. It's, I'm, I'm not somebody who just ended up here out of inertia. Um, I had opportunities to leave, and we could have left and decided to stay.
1: I always feel like when I talk to people who everyone always knows somebody from Amarillo, right? And everyone always describes it to me as like this black hole where you just kind of get you get taken into Amarillo and you just never leave. And mm-hmm. I've never found that to be true. I think that that is an unfair sort of way to characterize Amarillo because there's there are good things going on here. I I I really I'm I'm, I'm very defensive about it. Well, our city. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and I I know
0: a lot of people who did leave and then they decided to come back. Yeah. like it was a, a very significant decision for them to return. Uh, and I think that's some, that's a story we need to tell more often uh, than the people who just never left, didn't have the imagination to leave. Um, let's talk about the people who did leave and decided this was worth returning to.
1: Yeah, because it's important to, to go and, you know, the parables of that all over the place, right? You go and leave the place that you're from and then and then finding your way back home is a very, mm-hmm. like, the hero's journey sort of thing that you Absolutely. have to go through and, and figure out. And, you know, not to put Amarillo too far up on a pedestal, but it's a good place to come home to. It is. And that's
0: not to say I'll still be living here when I'm 80 years old. Sure. Um, I I value waking up in a new environment sometimes. Um, and, and I like trees and I like the beach <laughs> and I, I like other places. So, you know, as my kids... Become their own adults uh, there's no guarantee that I'll be here you know for twenty or thirty or forty more years uh, but this will always be home, I think because my family is still here I mean this is still our home base plus I've you know started businesses related to the city and it's it's hard to it's hard to just uproot those too
1: I was gonna say you do have that one one other grounding thing happening yeah. here the the latest iteration of your career that's kind of brought you far and wide. Um, let's talk about Brick and Elm.
0: Okay, let's talk about it. It's, uh, it feels like a natural place for me to have ended up when you look back at the course of your career um, because the thing I loved most about what I was doing at Amarillo College was that I was the editor of AC Current and I was assigning stories and I was editing those stories and then I was designing the magazine. Like I did all that stuff. Which isn't to say I'm the designer of Brick and Elm, but I love the process of building this this product from scratch, deciding what are the sections going to be, what is our editorial focus going to be, what are the stories we're gonna tell. I loved that at Amarillo College. When I was at Trafton and Sinveo, I produced the quarterly magazine for United supermarkets. When United was still family-owned, before they were bought by Albertsons, they had, you know, thousands of employees, they had eighty-something uh, stores all over Texas and they produced a quarterly employee magazine. I wrote that, I designed that, I helped put it together, uh, and loved it. It was, it was something I was good at. And so I've been like, as long as I've been a professional, I've been making magazines, uh, and, and to have the opportunity to do this now with, with Michelle instead of just being like a contract writer for a magazine, but to actually have some authority with it and be able to set the direction, all that stuff, Ah, uh, feels like I've um I've kind of come full circle. Uh, I, I'm better at it than probably I used to be. Uh, I'm more confident, uh, more competent, and it's uh it's a lot of fun.
1: As you started, you know, thinking about that and looking at that, I wondered if your career and even just you know the value that that this podcast has maybe revealed to you a little bit about the people and stories of Amarillo, and you know living here for as long as you have and and making the choice to be here. I wonder if that informed being a local person, living here, working here, having the experience that you do. Do you find that that helps in developing the product to make it what you really envision it to be? That you don't have like a whole lot of you know, like outside influences of people who want to make it something that doesn't look uniquely Amarillo?
0: Yeah, I, I think that is an important part because having... Having worked with people and telling stories, whether it was me writing for Amarillo Magazine for so many years, uh, which led to me doing this podcast, and then this podcast, I think, kind of led to Brick and Elm. But having the opportunity to work with local people and see the things that they are uh, that are important to them, that they value here in Amarillo, um, the the intensely local pride that people have uh, the way that we support local businesses like all of that informed what we wanted to do with the magazine and so having an opportunity to be a truly independent local magazine that's not answering to some corporation you know in Indiana or something like that that, that we we can make decisions based on what we know our readers want to read about uh, what our subscribers want to hear about what our advertisers care about like all of that stuff is because we know this area um Michelle has been has lived here just as long as I have has been working in this industry just as long as I have and so that that knowledge I think is not something that you can gain by you know bringing in some new person to run a media organization from outside Amarillo uh, that that homegrown quality I think is important
1: I think that that, you know, you mentioned United a couple of times. I was, we were talking about Sinveo-Trafton. I, I think that that was something that when, when the United family of stores became Albertsons, people on my social media, certainly when we, you know, when they put that out in the news and that was kind of the changeover was happening, were terrified of, mm-hmm. right. People were very connected to their grocery store, which seems odd unless you know that when you live in a small town, like I lived in Quanta for a while, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was the place where you saw people. That's the place not only do you nourish your family there, but like, you know, that's one of the biggest employers maybe in your city yeah. too, right? It really sets the tone of the community or it can. And so it was interesting to me to, to see how very protective
0: people were of even Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I wonder yeah, if it's the same. It is, you know, United was family owned. Um mm-hmm. that was a big part of their story and their culture until they weren't. And and that's that's a, a problem that a lot of successful businesses will have because very few businesses, unless you're Amarillo National Bank or something that's in its fifth generation, very few businesses will survive to the second or third generation. Um, they're always bought out by somebody bigger that's not here. And so that protectiveness of this is our thing, this belongs to us, I think is is very strong here. I think it's, it's something that I can totally relate to and that's one reason that I think people have been so excited about this magazine is that we said from the beginning, look, we're gonna, we're gonna do this local. Um, our ad sales team is not from outside Amarillo. Uh, we're going into offices and meeting with advertisers. We're we're meeting people to interview them. We're using local photographers, local writers. All of that stuff is important here in Amarillo, and it may not be as big of a deal if we were in Denver or New York or whatever, but in Amarillo it's important that things be local and there's there's like a natural loyalty to that here and that's good for us and it's something that i love about this area
1: let's talk about your copywriting that you do for people who are outside of amarillo you you kind of have a, a, you have clients who are not from here who are not local um yeah I mean, kind of gotten to diverse, diversify with that's like my bit.
0: real job yeah. um <laughs> the, the podcast <laughs> is not my real job brick and elm is a big side project at this point um but yeah, like my bread and butter has been in the marketing and advertising industries as a copywriter. So I, I, when I worked at Synveo, um, you know, I, I worked with clients all the time uh, that were doing projects, whether it was brochures or catalogs or TV commercials, radio ads, uh, and I would just produce all that content for them. Uh, And so that's kind of the thing that I've kept doing since then, working on my own. I I realized pretty quickly that there were a lot of people that were good designers, but there were very few people who could write well, especially writing within the advertising world. And so that's what I've really focused on um, as a a self-employed professional writer, is doing that kind of thing for clients. And I've got clients all over the United States, in California, in Colorado, in Washington, D.C. and, And what I've done is just... Found clients that need regular content. Whether uh, I, I work for a large uh, nonprofit aid organization, and I, I write reports about you know donations that go toward building water wells or building bathroom facilities, you know, for children in Africa and things like that. And so I I do a lot of reporting with that on a regular basis. I write for a, a travel company based in California that does. Uh, white label cruises for celebrities. Um, you know, if, if you go on the Weezer cruise to the Caribbean, this is the kind of company that produces those things. Okay. And so I get to do a lot of writing in the voices of these celebrities as they talk to their fan base and as they design their their travel experiences. Um. And, and so I, I just value those regular client relationships where on a weekly basis, I'm working with these clients to produce stuff that they need that's important to them. Uh, and in that way, I, I've kind of become like the in-house writer for several different organizations, uh, but I'm not actually in-house. I'm working on my own, but I'm, I've am i worked with them for so many years that I might as well be a part of that organization. And so, you know, that's one reason that I started the podcast was because most of my work was for outside audiences. And the podcast gave me a way to talk to Amarillo people and to tell those stories and to do work that, that felt like kind of something I was good at, but that had a local focus instead of, you know, talking to people who are fans of Weezer or whatever.
1: Although I'm sure they're nice
0: and good uh, people. Weezer fans are the best. Yeah. <laughs> I don't work for Weezer. I, that was just a, something that Unexample. came up when I when I mentioned it. So It's funny.
1: I don't know that people know that, you know, and we don't have to go into this too much, but like that there's a difference between writing novels, academic writing, journalism, broadcast writing, advertising, social media, you know, all of these different levels. And so, you know, when you, it's almost like when you say you're a writer, you're kind of not giving yourself enough credit because people may not know how diversified that
0: industry really has to be now. Yeah. And because you're a good writer in some parts of that, that scheme, it doesn't mean you're going to be good in other parts. Now, one thing that I've always been good at is I've been very adaptable as a writer. Uh, So I think back to high school, you know, when we would have uh, an assignment that said, you know, write a story, write the same story, but do it one time in the style of Ernest Hemingway, do it another time in the style of F. Scott Fitzgerald, do it another time in the style, like I was so good at that because I could copy styles. Um, And I've found that I can still do that. And so I can write straight up print journalism, I can write you know, celebrity social media ghostwriting and the voice of some other person, um, I can write as a corporation. And uh, I've, I've told people before that really what I'm good at is ventriloquism with a keyboard uh, because I can sort of throw my voice and write in all these different styles. And that's made me really uh, adept at what I do in this weird career, which is working for so many different clients, so many different, types of writing. I think a lot of those kind of feed into each other. I mean, I definitely use some journalism when I'm writing reports about uh, a new facility being built in Africa, because I can use quotes from people who are experiencing it. I can write thinking of my eventual reader and how they're going to understand this. Uh, But it it does require some adaptability and some flexibility in how you tell those stories.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting sort of thing that that people may not know about journalism is that now that you know, now we're asking students of journalism who are learning about the basics that you cover. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Mm-hmm. Right. And you you interview people and, and you add those quotes in and those kind of things. But now we're also asking these journalism students to be able to write for, you know, an online story which looks completely different right? than a broadcast
0: story. You can't just use a transcript from no. broadcast and that be your online.
1: And not have it be effective. Right. You know, you can do it, but you it can do it. It yeah, doesn't but look not, good.
0: It doesn't read as well. It
1: doesn't read well. And and posting stuff on social media, all of that is different too. It's a different sort of creative line of thought because again, you're trying to like cut through all of the the things that people are going to see on social media so that they'll actually go to your page and, and make that click. Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, you know, wanting to advertise a, a cruise with Weezer, then you want people to to dig in, to click on that and to find out more about
0: it. Well, oh, and you got to sound like Weezer. You yeah. know, you can't sound like here I am talking as, you know, Caribbean Cruise Line. Right. Uh, you have to talk like the, the actual band or the celebrity itself to reach that audience. Yeah.
1: To be authentic.
0: Yeah. To be authentic. Um, and, and, and that is, That is something that I I think we've all discovered, maybe over the past few years, having a president who was such an engaging and dynamic speaker in person, you know, he would go—Trump would do his rallies, and, you know, he would talk, and the crowd would be totally engaged, entertained, all that stuff. And then you would read the quotes that made it into print of some of the things he said, and, like, sentences just did not make sense. It was word salad and And so you see the difference between what's said in a conversation versus what's said in print, what makes sense when somebody's talking to you versus what makes sense when you're reading it. Um and that just shows you how how adept you have to be with words to work in all those mediums um, in, in order to make things make sense to your intended audience.
1: Mm-hmm. And even if you're not in in journalism but thinking about, you know, thinking about politicians, mm-hmm. You have to appeal in so many different ways on so many different platforms that we definitely did not look for twenty years ago. Oh yeah, you know it's so fascinating that you've got a, yeah you know, we've got politicians now who are being vilified because of previous tweets that they'd sent years ago mm-hmm. that people are are pulling up and going, well you said this, you know like like we're being held accountable for things that we did when we were eighteen. Yeah, you know which, which is, is
0: terrifying. Terrifying,
1: right? You know when you think about all of those. Sort of repercussions and 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 does the punishment fit the crime, you know? Now, yeah. in those kind of things, who knows? Who Probably knows? shouldn't, yeah. but
0: uh, yeah, the landscape has changed so much that um, the, the there are people who are just always online as a politician, um, always on as a politician because you have to be um and and it makes me long for the days when i never had to think about politicians <laughs> you know <laughs> and, until maybe something weird happened on the nightly news you could find out about it um but yeah that's that's definitely a change
1: jason tell me about when you are thinking about brick and elm and you're thinking about this podcast hey Amarillo, are you thinking of them as as two separate entities where does you know talk to me about the editorial decisions that you make who you interview and some of the the stories that you want to tell.
0: Well, so legally, yes, they are two separate entities. Well, yes. And uh, that was a conversation that we had, though. Like, does, mm-hmm. does Brick and Elm become an owner of Hey Amarillo? How does that work? Uh, we decided to keep them separate, but because I have authority within both of those spheres, like, I can make them as connected as I want to. And so I love the idea of this podcast being a companion to the print magazine. Because, I mean, you know as well as I do, it, if you do an interview uh, with somebody on TV, you might talk to them for 15, 20 minutes and you cut 90% of that oh, yeah. you know, into a, a three-minute package or a two-minute package. Um, and that 90% is often very interesting. It may, maybe doesn't work in service of whatever story you're having to tell to do it clearly and to do it well. But like the full conversation is always fascinating to me. And so I love the idea of Um, maybe having a 45-minute conversation with somebody in this venue as a podcast, and it being sort of this companion piece to a print interview with them that's about a bigger story. Uh, For instance, with Chris Podzimny uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I interviewed him two different occasions for the, the print magazine to tell the story of him and trail building and all that stuff. But like I picked a few quotes from him that worked within that story. Well, that was five percent maybe of what he said. And so to be able to have like this in the background, this podcast in the background of of print, uh, so that you can get the whole thing, uh, I think is a really interesting kind of experiment. Uh, I think it helps people kind of get educated on what journalism is like, too, because you could look at Brick and Elm and you could see some of the quotes that I pulled directly from the interview that I did for the podcast. And see the accuracy of those things, uh, and and so I love I love these two kind of working in tandem. And as I think about guests now, I kind of am thinking in both directions. And there will be times that you see somebody I feature on the podcast also be featured in Brick and Elm, or sometimes somebody I feature in Brick and Elm, and I do a a, a print interview with them, and then I think, man, I just want to hear more. I may invite them to be on the podcast. And and so I I think these things can kind of work in synergy with each other. Uh, and that's, that's exciting to me. I think that that's kind of a fun experiment.
1: How do you choose your guests for hammer?
0: People ask me that all the time. Mm -hmm. They ask me, are you going to run out of interesting people to interview? (laughs) And I always say no, because I made a list at the very beginning of this podcast of people who would be interesting to interview. I had about 200 people on that list and I have barely scratched that surface now at episode 200. Um, I don't need that list because every day, every week, people say, "Hey, you should interview this person," uh, or I run into somebody and I think, "Man, that's that's an interesting story. I want to tell that." And so, just in my daily life, I meet people, and it's easier to ask them to be on the show now because they've heard of it. Uh, I don't have to convince them that I'm not a weirdo, um, <laughs> that that I'm a. It's a legitimate podcast. It's not. It's not something that's going to embarrass you when you hear it, um, but. Yeah, I, there, there are so many stories to tell about the people who live here in Amarillo that um, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to run out of opportunities to tell them. If this podcast ends, it will end because it's time to end, not because I've run out of people to interview.
1: Amarillo's like that. There's always someone with a story.
0: Plenty of characters here. This episode of Hey Amarillo is brought to you by my friends at the WT Enterprise Center, which this summer celebrates its 20th year of helping local entrepreneurs build great companies. The support, encouragement, and expertise they offer is invaluable to this community. Whether you're launching a new business or trying to take an existing business to the next level, the experts at the Enterprise Center can coach you through every step in the process, One particular success story and graduate of their programs is Sage Oil Vac, a business right here in Amarillo, which was actually the very first client of the Enterprise Center 20 years ago. The upcoming July issue of Brick and Elm includes an interview with Aaron Sage about how that company has grown since then. It's now selling its products worldwide uh, with the help of the Enterprise Center. So you can learn more at WTEnterpriseCenter.com and look for the July issue of Brick and Elm. This episode is also sponsored by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You, you know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and the one here in Amarillo is owned by the Hawkins family, and they live right here in town. Lazy Boy offers customizable furniture so you can design a look that fits you with special financing and products to fit every budget. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. So visit Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636
1: Sonsi. And we're back with Jason Boyette. Jason, this is the part of the show that we call, you call, 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the fossilized shell of a giant land tortoise, discovered in Randall County, which indicates the High Plains was once characterized by mild, frost-free winters. You can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org.
0: How much would we love a mild, frost-free winter?
1: Some Sometimes I think I would like it. I think yeah. after the February storm, we were probably all ready to not uh, yeah. have a, a yeah. frost on the winter. Gardeners
0: would like that. Yeah,
1: exactly. All right. Here's the first of your eight straight questions, the one that you always start with. What's the one thing in this past year that has been revealed to you about local people,
0: I think I've had an interesting seat um, to answer this question because I've asked it of so many people. Um, I think it revealed to me mostly that we need, as individuals, we need to enlarge our social circles and and not just because we were cooped up in our house you know for for so many months, because we couldn't have larger sur- social circles. But as I've asked this question, it's become real clear um, because so many of the answers are similar uh, on the podcast. And I've been asking this since October or November of my guests. If I have a guest who is white, they talk about how much we all worked together, how great it was that people collaborated and took care of each other and, um, you know, worked hard to make sure we got past this. If my guest has been a person of color, they have talked about how divisive the past year felt. And I think that's really unique um, because it it really does, it, and I say this for myself because my eyes have been open to this too, it really does reveal our privilege. If, if we think about a crisis year and our first thought is, This was great. We all came together. We got through it. No problems. Um, When another segment of the population is thinking, I have been so stressed this year because either I was out of work or because of the racial unrest or because of the things I saw in social media that made me feel worried about my kids. Um, if, If people of color have one perspective almost unanimously and the majority population has one perspective almost unanimously and they are directly opposite of each other, We are divided, and we don't have enough friends crossing those lines to see any story other than our own. Uh, And that's become real clear to me uh, when when I ask that question. We need to. If if you are somebody who has not been largely impacted by the pandemic, then you probably don't have close enough friends in another part of society. Who have been impacted. If you're somebody who has not dealt with that racial segregation or stress or anxiety, then you don't have enough friends who fall into that framework and vice versa. Um, and so it, we, we need to enlarge our circles. We need to not just be surrounded by people who think and experience life exactly the same ways that we do.
1: I wonder if that experience and that perspective sort of reinforced what a lot of people were saying about the pandemic right that it was fake that it was not killing all these people although we know it was right, right. we know all this data from from these from the cdc and from the world health organization and all of these things yeah. we know to be true right but there was a lot of interference in that and i wonder if it was fed from privilege in that in that way yeah right I, if it I, just I, reinforced your biases
0: i think our friend groups are homogenous. Mm-hmm. We are attracted to people who are like us, who are in the same social position as as us, which is great if you want to confirm what you believe and who you are. If you want to be challenged, you need to have friendships with people who are different from you, who are in a different economic strata, who are in a different racial or ethnic strata, who, you know, maybe grew up someplace else, uh, maybe have different political beliefs. I I, I think that Variety can make people stronger. Diversity can make people stronger. Um, and, and that's become increasingly important to me as I've matured as a person, as an adult, that I need to be friends with people who are not exactly the same as me. Um, and, and the podcast is one way for me to do that, uh, to, to introduce you know, guests to listeners who are not otherwise going to hear those conversations. All right, what does this area have too much of? So I knew you were going to ask this one. And and I have a, a weird answer to it, uh, but I'm just going to go with it. There's this, uh, there's, there's this psychological idea um, that I actually first heard of from a, a psychologist who worked in the parenting world um, about the practice of interviewing for pain, is what they call it. And it's the idea that you ask questions expecting a negative response. So say you have a kid... And they come home from school and you say, oh, was it just another hard day at school today? Or, oh, did you really struggle with the other kids on the playground? You're you're asking them a question that's reinforcing a negative with them. And they say, you should not do that as a parent. I think we interview for pain in Amarillo. Because if, if you have a guest come to the city, if you have a, a tourist or somebody who moves here new, the questions we ask are, have you gotten used to the wind yet? Or yeah we don't have any trees, do we? You know we we focus on the negative aspect of Amarillo uh, because all of us can see that. We've experienced that, but when you interview for pain, you're reinforcing a lot of that negative stuff and and you're you're causing somebody to take an overall negative view of things and i I think we do that here. We apologize for the weather, for the flatness, for um the people, for the politics, I mean whatever we don't like about Amarillo, like we want other people to not like it too. Um, and I, that bothers me now because I see it. And I, I see that tendency in myself. Uh, and I wish that we would apologize less for Amarillo and focus on the things, not in a, a Pollyanna way. Um, we need to to do better at a lot of stuff. Um, but let's let's also celebrate the things that are good about living here because there are those good things. That's why we live here. So too much interviewing for pain to get really deep in the woods on, on that. What does our area not have enough of? Strong local media, and that's that's not that's not a knock on what you do, uh, because I think, you know, the the broadcast news media has had to step up maybe more in the past few years, or or has taken a larger watchdog role, let's say, um, because our local print media has, has been declining. Um, whereas, you know, something happens in 1996 Amarillo, the newspaper is going to be all over it. The broadcast is going to be all over it. The radio is going to be all over it. Now, you know, the, the, the newspaper has declined. Radio has declined a little bit. You know, broadcast is the only one who's all over a story. And, and so that, that decline in local media is not unique to Amarillo. It's happening all over the country in markets like ours, but it's not good for the city. Uh, I I believe the media is a public good. It is something that not only holds um, city government to account, but um, is is a way of telling the stories that are important for civic engagement, for the economy, for uh, civic pride, all those things. And so when the media starts to decline, I think we lose something very valuable. Um, and so that is happening in Amarillo. Uh, I, I hope to, to reverse that as much as I can with the stuff that I'm doing, whether it's the podcast or the magazine. I know that, that you and your news station are having to do the, the best journalism in the city right now. I mean, I really think you guys are doing that. And it's, it's out of necessity. It's because we, we can't all share the load anymore like, like we used to be able to do. I know that some communities have, um, have sort of turned to a, a non-profit, you know, print newspaper format um, because it is a public good. And when you do it for profit now in markets like this, you end up stripping the newsroom, and that's what's happened. Um, so I'd love to see somebody with a lot of money come together and say, hey, we're going to resurrect the newspaper. Uh, until that happens, though, you know, I, 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 I can just hope that, that we don't lose it entirely.
1: And the long tail effects of that happening are that fewer people have their voices amplified to people who are in positions of power. And so you're really silencing people who are less privileged than others Yes, because you're not giving them that direct line to the people who are responsible for fixing their problems. Right. And you find people who are, you know, there are young journalists here who are just working to the bone. You yeah, know, yeah, and and really trying in this in this industry, and so it's it's interesting to hear you hear you say, that. yeah, talk about interviewing for pain, jeez, oh geez. for sure. <laughs> Why are you asking these questions?
0: No, and, and for um, you know when when there's a news vacuum, when an established entity like a newspaper yeah has its voice decline, something's going to fill that vacuum, and these days it's like Facebook and and things that are not fact checked in the same way. Uh, that don't have the same gatekeepers, and that's not good. Yeah, exactly you know, For a like city we're like ours,
1: talking about earlier in the show, you know, if you you don't have those those things in it, it, to keep the balance of power happening, right, to hold people to account, but to also make sure that what you're delivering is correct to people who are yeah. receiving it, then the vacuum occurs, and then you have a, a less educated, um, more silent
0: mm-hmm. public, and you know? that's where the conspiracy theories thrive. That's where the the falsehoods, um, the stories that are not true, you know, gain traction.
1: I want to ask you this question, but I want to ask it in a bit of a different way than you're used to. Okay. Your question is typically, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside of our area? I want to like, I almost want to ask you like pitch Amarillo to me, <laughs> like when, like when you're trying to convince people that, you know, maybe, maybe you are, you know, taking that sort of um, pride in your community okay. sort of
0: perspective. What do you What tell people? Cost of living is amazing. Four distinct seasons, which I, I, tr- I really do value. I, I think that's, that's an underrated part of, of Amarillo. It is big enough that you don't feel like you're missing out on something. But it is small enough that you don't have the headaches of a larger urban area. And so my guests talk about this all the time. I can go, I can drive to the other side of Amarillo in 15 minutes. If it takes 15 minutes, I'll be annoyed because it should take 12 minutes. Um, It's probably, probably because of construction on I-40 or something. And so there's no commute to speak of. Um, There's great sunsets. There's interesting weather. Um, It can be very, very great. It can be, uh, annoying. If it's annoying, we just have something to talk about with each other. Um, there are few places, uh, I think, that um, that offer that kind of thing uh, in the quantities that we have it. Plus, you know, we're four hours, five hours from the Rocky Mountains, if we want to be. Uh, so the central location is, is good, too. Those are all benefits, I think, of living here. What is your favorite building in Amarillo? So I don't know if this qualifies as a building. Um, it, it's a house. It's the Frank Lloyd Wright house, mm-hmm. uh, which I I had the uh, privilege of getting to tour with my dad back in April for his birthday, which is a very Amarillo thing um, to just <laughs> say, "Hey, can me and my dad come see your house?" Okay, come on. <laughs> yeah. um, it's you know I, I I'm an architect's kid, so I've always been interested in Frank Lloyd Wright. I've always appreciated well designed buildings. Um, the fact that there are four Frank Lloyd Wright designed structures in Texas, and one of them is a private residence in Amarillo that 99% of Amarillo has not seen and is not aware is here. I love that. That's a very Amarillo thing. Um, and so the fact that we've, we've got this house that's, you know, 60 years, 70 years old at this point, it's been well-preserved, uh, it's been taken care of. It is amazing, um... I like it because it says a lot about this city uh, that, that there are people here who appreciated fine things had, had, you know, the resources to make it happen and then have taken care of it uh, over the years uh, feels very much like, like the story of the city.
1: Speaking of stories of the city, what is your favorite character or story about Amarillo?
0: It probably depends on the time of year and what I've been writing and, what I've been researching and all that stuff. Right now, I really love the story of Melissa Dora Oliver Eckel, mm-hmm. uh, MD Oliver Eckle, as she was known back then because she arrived in Amarillo in the late 19th century as the heiress of this huge manufacturing fortune. She was a widow, came here, and upon stepping foot in Amarillo, had more money than anything else in Amarillo, including all the banks. And she went about doing good things for the city. I mean, she built Amarillo's first skyscraper, which is the Barfield building, used to be known as the Oliver Echo building. Um, She built it because she wanted Amarillo to have a a big building, and she was a developer in that way. I've heard rumors that during the the Great Depression that she pretty much kept a lot of Amarillo afloat and at one point had more resources than all the local banks, and she was able to just kind of create this bubble around Amarillo that we've always talked about the city having, um, because she was a woman, she went by MD Oliver Eckle instead of Melissa Dora, because a lot of people, you know, businessmen would worry about taking a loan from uh, a woman. Especially a widow, especially Especially back then. Oh yeah. And so just the idea that this take no char or take no prisoners, you know, widow comes into Amarillo and just starts investing in the city, has so much power, has so much influence, has so much foresight to be a developer and did that, you know, sometimes secretly, I just think is cool. It's, it's that pioneer mentality um, that was required of all women, I think, living in Amarillo at the time, but that she was able to have so much influence, I think, is really interesting.
1: We talked about you know earlier on, like, it's important to be, to have the perspective maybe to see the potential mm-hmm. of Amarillo, right? And you don't really see that maybe if you're, if you're in it and have been in it forever, but if you come from this the outsider. outside, right. Yeah. This like outsider quotation marks to, to come in and go, Oh no, this is where I'm going to invest yeah. my, this is, these are the people, this is the place, this is where I want to be. I think that that's, that's really not unique maybe in a lot of people. No, here in Amarillo. but
0: that is why we do want people to leave here and then come back. Yeah. Because those are a lot. Those are oftentimes the people who drive change. Who mm-hmm. say, "This is what I saw when I was in Austin. We need that here," yeah. and they do it. Uh, and, and that sort of that sort of vision is important. That's why it's important to get outside of Amarillo, whether you're traveling, whether you move away, or whatever, uh, because you get a different perspective and you bring that perspective back, and it's it's for our benefit.
1: What's your favorite restaurant in Amarillo
0: at the moment? At the moment. <laughs> um... It's hard for me to say a favorite restaurant. So I'm going to introduce one that has, I don't think has been talked about on this podcast, which is Crazy Larry's Barbecue. Tyler's gets a lot of love. There's a lot of great barbecue places in Amarillo. Um, I've always been a Crazy Larry's guy because it's always been my neighborhood. Uh, their beans are the best in town. Their Frito pie is my favorite. Uh, their hot links are good. Larry himself ran for mayor a few years ago. He's that crazy. Uh, which would have been cool to have a mayor with like a you know '70s rock star mullet going on. He does have a, um, a pretty incredible. He's a mullet. character, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. So let's go with Crazy Larry's. It's on uh, Tecla in in an old Taco Villa building, I should say. It's a Taco Villa building. Yeah, that was that's my cool. Taco Villa when I was a kid. Now it's my barbecue joint.
1: I couldn't remember if it was like a Burger King or a. It's right next to a Burger King. Maybe that's it's between
0: a Burger King. King and an Asian food place next to Chios, so it's kind of tucked in there.
1: When was the last time you went to Paladar Canyon?
0: Oh, I'm embarrassed by this one. It was, it was pre-pandemic last spring. Um, went on a hike with Amy. There, there was a period where we would go hike out there all the time, and we haven't done it in in a couple of years. Uh, so, it is. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I talk about all the time and then have not actually been there. Although I will be going to uh, see a performance of Texas this summer because I'm excited that it's back. And so I, I will be back this summer. But, yeah, I've not I've not visited in, in uh, several months.
1: You know, I, and that's always one of the big selling points that I tell people. I'm like, oh, the canyon. You've got to go to the canyon. And then I'm like, have I gone to the canyon in the past while? And, yeah. you know,
0: <laughs> probably more this year than I had just because there was, you know, little else to do. But I I miss what a shame. Yeah, I I miss it, and I I need to go more often. And I I have taken guests there very often. Like, I've walked the – hiked the Lighthouse Trail with friends who have never been there before um, several times. And so, yeah, I just need to get back to it. That
1: concludes the eight straight questions. Jason, you like to conclude by asking the guests to endorse
0: something. So what's one local thing that you would want listeners to know about or experience? Typically, my guests will talk about a – you a nonprofit or something? And obviously, Emerald has great nonprofits. Uh, I am I am towards the end of my school dad career because Owen is uh, graduating. By the time people listen to this, he will have graduated uh, from Emerald High. Um, Amy and I have always been very involved in our kids' schools. I was the only dad in the PTA at Windsor for years. Really, really. You know, we we did stuff there on a regular basis. We were involved in middle school and high school. We've been presidents of the Basketball Booster Club. I I just think that, number one, parents should not ignore their kids' education, um, should not just kind of let that happen. Uh, so we've always been real active in engaging our, our kids, talking about what they're learning at school and all that stuff. But we also like to complain about the schools. Uh, and, you know, Amarillo has such a strong public school system that there are so many opportunities for parents to be involved. And I know that not every parent can do that because of their jobs, because of responsibilities. But if you have an opportunity, whether it's to, you know, bring your kid lunch and meet a few of their friends, you know, in seventh grade, which is something I loved to do, we did on a weekly basis, or be on the PTA or serve, you know, in in some advisory role with something with AISD or with your kid's school, do that because that's how you meet your kids' friends. That's how you get to know your kids' teachers. That's how you get to know the faculty. Um, And so right now I'm thinking about parenting. I'm thinking about school. And that's one thing that I've always been sort of astonished that there weren't more people getting involved in that way. Because I'm, I'm enough of a control freak that I want to know, like, what are my kids' teachers like? What are they teaching him? Um, so yeah, if, if you have the opportunity, if you have the ability to do it, get involved with your kids' school.
1: Jason Boyette, thank you so much for having me and for being on your show.
0: Jackie, thanks for interviewing me. I appreciate it. And that concludes the episode, which was a little bit longer than usual, but that's what happens when you let me answer the questions, I guess, instead of ask them. I want to say thanks to Jackie for interviewing me and to the whole KAMR team for giving me a weekly slot to talk about the show every Thursday on Studio 4. Thanks also, of course, to Angelina Marie for editing the show every week. And thank you, all of you listeners, who listen week in and week out to this show. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for reviewing it uh, on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for uh, sharing the Facebook posts, following on social media, all that stuff. I really do appreciate it. I'm also grateful to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring eight straight every week. And I want to thank this week's episode sponsors, the Texas Outdoor Musical, the WT Enterprise Center, and Lazy Boy Home Furnishings. This podcast exists every week, every week, because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Amarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Whitten, Chris Selda, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Jess Heredia. This, again, has been episode 200. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.